So um, you guys get to be stuck with me this morning. Um, it's going to be okay, though. It's going to be okay. We are continuing in our series. Um, so start, sending, start, starting back at the beginning of the year, we started looking at the Apostles' Creed. Um, you know, Dan had it up on the screen for us. We looked at different parts of it. And really, last week, we started looking at the value of the church as we started asking, really, the question, what is the church? What do we do at church? Like, biblically, what are we supposed to be doing? And as Clayton mentioned, it has to be so much more than just coming to a building on Sunday morning. So we're answering that question. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 12 and really seeing um, Paul's kind of instructions to Corinth as we answer that question. So in preparation for this Sunday, um, I was doing some reading and I was looking at statistics and things like that. And um, for me, I'm a sports fan. I enjoy statistics. And I read a statistic that you guys are either going to find interesting or you're going to find horrifying. And here's the great thing. I can see all of you, so I'll know immediately what your response to the stat will be. So last week's Super Bowl, I read a stat that the average American consumed 2,400 calories over the course of the game. And I'm looking around the room, and um, some of you are smiling. Some of you are very much not smiling. Um, so some of you think, wow, that's really interesting. And some of you are like, man, that is disgusting. That's horrifying. Some of you are even asking, Chris, why are you sharing this stat with us? I don't think Paul talks about this when he's talking to Corinth. And you're right, he doesn't. But here's the deal. In thinking about that statistic, I was struck by how much of a consumer-driven society we have become. So in the weeks leading up to the big game, if you went to the supermarket, you saw displays for all sorts of different snacks, and maybe you even went to a Super Bowl party last week. And as you sat down and you kind of put your feet up, you had your snacks, it was all about you for the next several hours. And if you think about the church in America, it can be very consumer-driven. So think of it this way. You know, maybe you've had thoughts like, man, that message was great. If only it were like 10 minutes shorter because then I could get out of the building, I could drive home, I could have lunch, and it would really structure my day differently. Maybe you thought, man, that message was good, but like, I wish my pastor was funnier. I wish he was more engaging. I wish he said things like this. You know, maybe you even thought, you know, worship was okay, but if I could just give Margie my Spotify playlist, that way she knows the songs that I like and we can only sing the songs that I like. But think about it, these are things that we've all thought before. We become very, very consumer-driven in the way that we think about the body of Christ. I'd like to suggest today, Paul actually takes an opposing stance in 1 Corinthians 12. This morning, God wants to move us from being consumers who come to a building and just take in to being contributors to his body. There is a big difference in being a consumer versus being a contributor. It takes a lot more effort to be a contributor. But guys, here's the deal. When we all become contributors, when we all serve the body, we're truly better together. We're more honoring to the Lord that way. So we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 21. And Paul writes this. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the feet, I have no need of you. 
On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is powerful. God, and for these next few moments, I pray um, that it would not be me speaking a message, Lord, but that you would speak to us through your word. God, that you would bring about encouragement, that you would bring about conviction. Wherever we are right now in life, God, that you would speak personally to us through your word. Lord, this morning, help us to be your church. Help us to follow you more fully. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. So as we look at this passage, I want to make a few observations that Paul talks to us about with the church. Because again, it's more than just coming to a building. It's more than just watching someone sing or somebody preach. It's a life that's lived. So starting in verse 21, um, you would see the body works as one or it doesn't work at all. Okay. The body works as one or it doesn't work at all. One of the main issues in Corinth, and you know, we'll pause there. There were a lot of issues in Corinth. Okay. There are a lot of issues in Corinth. Um, I've joked with some other pastor friends of no matter how bad it gets at your church, like at least you're not Corinth. Okay, that's how bad it was. There was sexual sin in Corinth and there was division in Corinth and there was believers suing each other. There were people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper in Corinth. There were many, many issues in Corinth. Thankfully, we see God doesn't give up on this church. There's some sharp words of admonition there's Paul kind of confronting this church, but Paul doesn't give up on this church. Because one of the main issues in Corinth was disunity. In chapter one, that's actually how Paul starts his letter, addressing the disunity. And there's, there's a phrase in there, um, there's a paragraph really, and I'll, I'll summarize it as he's addressing people. And he says, you know, some of you say that like you were baptized by Paul, and some of you say you were baptized by Cephas, and some of you say you were baptized by Apollos. And basically what he's saying is, you know, there's like little subgroups, little cliques kind of all throughout the church. You're not unified. It would be like today saying, you know what, um, Pastor Dan is my leader, and all I'm going to follow is Pastor Dan. And then another one of you saying like, okay, Pastor Dan's okay, but like really like Clayton's my leader. He's the new guy, like I want to follow him. And somebody else saying, you know, Clayton's all right, but like Margie's my leader. I'm going to follow Margie. And then somebody else saying like, I need no earthly leader. I have Jesus, you know, so I need not to follow a pastor or anything like that. That's what was going on in Corinth. And if you think about it, things like that still happen in churches today. We're very divided. We try to be individuals. We're very divided. Paul is pointing us toward unity. And you would see in verse 21, there's this phrase, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. You would not imagine your physical body saying to itself, hey, I don't, I don't need my feet today. I don't need my hands today. I don't need my head today. 
Um, I found this out the hard way about 10 years ago. I had surgery on my right knee, complete tear of the ACL. Doctor said, you know, it's gonna be like six to like eight months of physical therapy. Um, the worst part of it, it was right before summer. I was playing in a softball league with a few friends. And so I came to the realization, I'm not gonna play any softball this summer. That was like worse than like, it's like, okay, physical therapy, surgery, whatever. Like, no, I can't play softball. This is awful. And it's funny, the rest of my body couldn't say to my knee, you know what, um, Chris's knee, don't worry, we don't need you. We want to have fun this summer. We're going to keep playing softball. Um, I found out very quickly that there were a lot of things I could not do without my knee. I needed my physical body to be unified. And in that moment, unfortunately, it wasn't. You would not imagine your physical body saying to itself, hey, foot, I don't need you. Hey, hand, I don't need you. Hey, mouth, I don't need you. Um, but we cannot even fathom, we shouldn't even fathom saying to each other, you know what, brother in Christ, sister in Christ, I don't need you. We very much need each other. And I would even suggest um, how we speak to each other, how we treat each other absolutely matters. It's huge. How a church speaks to each other and treats each other absolutely matters. Paul addresses this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 where he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And maybe your copy of God's word this morning says no corrupting talk or no unwholesome talk, but Paul paints a contrast here of there's a way that we speak to each other that tears each other down, but then there's a way that we're supposed to speak to each other that builds each other up. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. I thought it was interesting. Last week in our discussion group through I Am a Church Member, chapter two of that book, if you're reading along, um, really touched on the idea of gossip. And I will say, for my group, I know we spent a lot of time talking about gossip um, because here's the deal. Gossip is personal. We've all seen it. We've all had it done maybe to us. Maybe we've even taken part in it at times but we know gossip can be hurtful. Gossip can tear the body apart. That's how some of these subgroups start to form when you start talking about certain people um, as almost like they're not even a person. Gossip kills. Gossip absolutely kills a church. This is a side note, but I felt like I needed to say this. Um, this also includes our use of social media. You know, I remember um, working at a college beforehand you know, talking with students, and they would say to me, you know, Chris, it's not like I actually said it out loud. I just posted it to my Facebook. And I remember thinking, huh, that's interesting, but like I see your name, and that looks like you in that picture, and then there's a statement attached to it. So you kind of did say it. If you think, you know, if you think about it, sometimes Christians can be the most unchristlike in their use of social media. It's like we have permission to kind of say whatever we feel like, but yet it's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4. It's unwholesome talk. It's not edifying. It's not gracious. It's not Christ-like. How a church treats itself ultimately is a witness to the world. How its members treat each other. So if they're to say, hey, I don't need you, if they're that part of the body saying, hey, hand, I don't need you, hey, I, I don't need you, it's a witness to the outside world. 
I heard a story once. Um, a woman was in a supermarket, true story, and she met another lady in passing, and you know, they were having a conversation just kind of casually, and as they were talking, um, the one woman brings up her church that she attends. The other woman hears the name of that church, and her first response is, huh, isn't that the church with all the problems? And so here's what happened. The church had gone through a split. It was a nasty situation. There was a lot of gossip and fighting and all of these other things. But it had become known in that community, hey, steer clear of that church. Like, this is how they treat each other and all of that. And this woman was heartbroken. Wow, my church has become this church in the neighborhood that's not known for anything good. On the other hand, there are stories when, when disasters happen that the church steps in and they serve and they love their neighbors and they witness and they're for their community and they make the name of Jesus known in that community. Those churches have great reputations there. And it's all starting with how do they treat each other? Do they say to their own body, hey, I don't need you? Or do they partner together? Is there unity? I think it's important to note, unity does not mean uniformity. Okay. Uniformity happens when we all kind of look the same. We all kind of do the same things. We all have the same giftings. Really, the church is kind of the opposite if you think about it. We all have unique giftings, Christ. We have different abilities. We have different experiences that God has given us to shape us. But we have a unified mission. That's the unity that we're after. Paul says in verse 25 that there may be no division in the body. In order to be better together, in order to truly contribute to the body of Christ, we have to be unified. We have to be unified in our purpose. Not uniformity, but unity. The body works as one or it doesn't work at all. The next observation I want to make in this passage starts in verse 22. The body has many members, but each member has a distinct and unique role. So Paul says this in verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our presentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members have the same care for one another. So every part of the body matters. And Paul kind of makes this argument. If you think about your physical part, physical body, there are parts of your physical body that you pay more attention to. There are parts that you pay more attention to covering up. I had a friend in college that anytime a group of us were going out to do something, um, we always joked if he said, I had to go fix my hair, we knew that that was going to be at least a half hour. Because <laughs> we're like, man, we think like, it's like every individual like hair, it feels like he does something with, you know? It, it's going to be like a half hour. He spent special attention to that. You know, there was a baseball player um, I remember watching him growing up. His name was Kirby Puckett. And Kirby Puckett was a very talented baseball player. Um, a baseball term they would use for him was that he was a five-tool player, meaning he did everything well. But here's the deal. Kirby Puckett had to retire early because he was losing vision in one of his eyes. 
Now, I'm sure whenever he stepped into the batter's box, got ready for a game, he didn't think, you know, I really hope my left eye works today. You know, he probably thought about the opposing team or what he was going to do or, or, you know, any of those kinds of things. But once one of his eyes stopped working, he could no longer play the game. The rest of his body suffered because one part was not working correctly. The church is the same way. If we didn't have a children's program or a youth program, it's like, what about the next generation of believers coming up? They would be absent from the life of our church. If we only had a children and youth program, and we didn't have, I don't like to say older, if we didn't have more seasoned believers, who is discipling that next generation? We need each other. When one part goes missing, the church suffers. On the same hand, when everybody is functioning together, the body is edified. My wife loves going to the chiropractor. I think one of the saddest things about leaving Virginia and coming here for her was that she loved our chiropractor. And she thought, man, I'm going to have to find a new chiropractor. What if I can't find one? And she was blessed beyond measure when she found a new chiropractor. That was like one of the greatest days for her. It's like, oh, I found someone. He's really good. He's great. He's in Fairfield. I don't have to drive all over the place. And, you know, she would say things to me like, Chris, you don't get it. You know, it, it might just be my neck or it might just be my shoulder. But once that's kind of like put back in place, like the rest of my body feels great. There's just something about it that once that's kind of put back in place, the rest of my physical body feels great. The church is the same way. When everybody serves in their role, in their calling, in their gifting, in their ability, everybody wins. The body is edified. The body grows. It's kingdom work. It's amazing. Guys, ultimately, the body is not all about who leads from the front. Okay. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul addresses this as he talks about this idea of spiritual gifts. He says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So there's this idea here that God has given each person in Christ a gift to use to edify the body. That each of us has a gift and together, collectively, we can use those gifts to encourage each other and to honor the Lord. It's an amazing thing. Each of us has a very valuable role that we play in the life of a church. It's interesting. Um, I met a young man uh, probably about five or six years ago. I was teaching a class, and I remember I got to my class early. There was like a gap in my schedule, and there happened to be a gap in this young man's schedule as well. And so we start talking, and I just say, hey, Paul, where are you from? And he tells me where he's from, and we start talking about church. And he tells me the name of his church, and I like kind of flip out. I kind of have like a moment, and I say, Paul, you go to David Platt's church. David Platt is like this amazing pastor and he writes these books and he preaches these messages. And, um, you know, I'm like, for lack of a better term, I'm like totally like man crushing, you know, like, it's like, you go to David Platt's church. It's amazing. And we talk and Paul starts laughing at me. And I'm like, Paul, are you laughing? Because like, I have a man crush on this guy who's your pastor. And he said, Chris, no, you don't get it. The reason I'm laughing 
you said it's David Platt's church, um, but really it's not. It's like he's our pastor and he plays a role, but like my parents, they, they serve faithfully and they play a role. And I've attended since I was a kid and, and I play a role. If you think about it, it's the Lord's church and each of us has a role and we're all needed. And it blew my mind. That conversation happened probably five or six years ago. I still think about it all the time of here, this 18-year-old college freshman telling me, Chris, it's not David Platt's church. It's the Lord's church. We all play a role in it. We're all valuable. We're all needed to play our role. So our spiritual gifts are very important. We all need to act on those gifts. I think the saddest thing in a lot of churches is there are a lot of gifts that go unused, that people don't step into their giftedness and start serving the body. There are a lot of different places in the Bible you could look at for spiritual gifts. And so I'm going to give you a few passages that maybe you could look at a little bit later on. Because to be honest, we could do an entire sermon series on spiritual gifts. So I'm going to give you a little bit more of an overview. But 1 Corinthians 12, the passage we're in today, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. Um, I would encourage you, read that on your own time if you want to dive into this topic a little bit more as you think about spiritual gifts. But as we think about those gifts, really, I heard a pastor once say, there's three A's in finding your gifts. Okay. There is ability, there's affinity, and there's affirmation. And somewhere in the middle, that's where your gifts lie. Okay. So ability is what you can do. Affinity is what you love to do. And then affirmation is what other people affirm in you. And I'd like to think most people probably know what they can do, and maybe a lot of people even know what they love to do. But I think for all of us, we can all use that affirmation from somebody. We can absolutely all use that affirmation from somebody. Just coming alongside somebody and saying, hey, I noticed you did this. I noticed you did that. I saw how you handled that conversation. I saw how you served during coffee hour. I saw how you helped with worship. That affirmation can go a long way. I'd like to think that if everybody were affirming, that we'd have more people using their gifts on a consistent basis. And so you might say, Chris, so how do I even go about finding my gifts? And I would encourage you, the best way to find your gifts is to start serving somewhere. You'll find out very quickly um, what it is you're drawn to and what it is maybe you're not so gifted in. You'll find those things very quickly. But sometimes an event kind of happens. And what I love about it is that spiritual gifts just kind of like burst out. They burst at the seams. People just kind of jump into action and you see where their giftings lie. So I'm going to tell you a story. Um, the title of the story is The Youth Pastor Sprains His Ankle. Um, true story, unfortunately. It happened about a year ago. And it was a typical Monday night. We were down in the gathering hall to start the night. Um, some of you were there. I'm seeing some smiling faces. And I would say, this is not the way I would prefer for people to find their gifts. I would have liked to not have sprained my ankle that night. Um, but we're spread out across the gathering hall. And on one end, there's a few tables and a few students are playing board games. Um, on another end, like there's snacks and a few students are just eating and hanging out. I'm at the far end of the gathering hall playing basketball with a few of the middle school boys. So I go to grab the basketball, get the, get the rebound. I come down and I land on one of the student's foot. I instantly roll my ankle. Um, and, you know, my, my spirit wanted to, like, jump back up. And, you know, my body was kind of saying, Chris, stay down. Like, this is not happening. Um, so I'm laying there. 
my back, you know, looking up, kind of thinking like, okay, how am I going to explain this to Jess? You know, all of those kinds of things. And I just hear a voice yell out from the other side of the gathering hall. And this lady just says, Chris, don't worry. I learned about this in school. I know exactly what to do. And I look up and I see one of our students sprinting toward me. And I'm thinking, okay, I think I just turned into this girl's science project. I don't really know <laughs> what's going on. It, it just kind of blew my mind. But instantly, she, within seconds, she was over with a bag of ice and, hey, here's what you need to do. You need to elevate. And, and so I have this you know, 15-year-old girl telling me all these different things, trying to tend to my ankle. And what was cool about it, as I look back on it, I saw the gift of service like jump into action. Again, that is not the way I would have preferred for her to discover her giftedness. I really would have preferred like me not getting hurt for that to happen, but I saw the gift of service jump into action. You know, maybe if you were there, your giftedness would have jumped into action too. So if you had a teaching gift, you might have said to me, you know, Chris, if you would have timed your jump like five seconds beforehand, um, you would have landed at this point and you would have turned your ankle. And really, Chris, the whole thing is a metaphor for life about how sin brings us down, but Jesus lifts us up, and you would find like some way to like tag some life lesson in it. If you had the gift of mercy, you would lay down on the ground next to me and just cry. <laughs> and you would say, Chris, you've turned your ankle, but I've turned my ankle too, and we all have setbacks in life. But with God's help, we're going to get through this. If you had the gift of prophecy, you might say something like this. Um, Chris, really, there's some secret sin in your life, and that's why your ankle is in the shape it is. So if you just confess and repent, like, you know, everything can be okay. Depending on how God has shaped you, your gifts jump into action, and your gifts ultimately get revealed in those types of situations. I'm glad that girl discovered her gift of service. Again, would have preferred it would be in a different way, but I'm glad she discovered her gift of service. Without a diversity of gifts, the church suffers. So if we all had a teaching gift, or we all had a mercy gift, or we all had the same gift, there would be parts of our body that would suffer. Thankfully, that is not the way God has designed us. We all have unique gifts to serve one another, to build up each other, to honor, to honor his church. It's getting out of the, the consumer seat and moving to the contributor seat. So the body has many members, and each member plays a role. And so, Trinity, I want you to think, what is your role this morning? What's your role? In most churches, um, you know, there's the old statistic that 10% of the people do 90% of the work. I think in looking in this passage today, we could say that is not the way God has designed the body. He designs each of us to play a unique role in serving his kingdom. What's your role this morning? Down to verse 26. The body has a responsibility to minister to each other. Ministry is a responsibility of the church as a whole. And verse 26 says this. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You know, when we look at the scriptures with our youth, um, I try um, really to point this out. If you feel like the Bible is repeating itself, like make a note of that, okay? They're trying to get a point across because Paul writes something similar to this in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, where he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep 
with those who weep. In every season of life, the ministry of the church of each and every single one of us is needed. So maybe you've sat with someone after, you know, they've just gotten married, but maybe you've also sat with someone um, as they've poured their heart out to you, um, just sharing the details of how their marriage fell apart. Maybe you've sat with someone um, after they've just had a child, but maybe you've also sat with someone after they've experienced a miscarriage. In every season, we need each other. We get to celebrate the highs of life, but we get to be with each other in the valley. The ministry is needed from each of us. Acts chapter 2, there's a really great summary statement of the early church. When you think about who was the early church, what did they do, what were some characteristics, Acts chapter 2 really sums it all up. And one verse I want to look at in that passage is Acts 2, verse 45, where it says this, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Basically, whenever there was a need, the church stepped up and they met the need. So you've probably seen this floating around online, um, this idea or this website really, GoFundMe. I think GoFundMe is kind of fascinating in a lot of ways that, you know, people have things go on in their lives and they set up a website, a GoFundMe, and just say, hey, anybody can contribute really any amount of money to meet whatever kind of need I have. Sometimes it's a physical need. Um, so, you know, somebody has cancer, or they have mounting medical bills, and they say, hey, I'm going to set this up and people can contribute. Um, I've seen other ones where there's like a natural disaster and they say, you know what, we need money to rebuild this school, this town, and so people can come in and contribute. Now, I've also seen some like, hey, I've got student loans. Let me put this out here. Maybe some strangers will be nice and they'll contribute to my student loans. I've seen, you know, hey, I want a new car. You know, maybe somebody will contribute to that. But I think it's interesting in the generation we live in that people are willing to really put that out to strangers, if you think about, about it, in hopes that someone will contribute something to help out in their time of need. And so I had this thought, what if the church really lived out Acts 2.45? What if we were GoFundMe? What if whenever there was a need that, ar- that arose, our first thought wasn't, man, let me seek out some strangers in hopes that they'll contribute, but a confidence in knowing I'm a part of a loving family, a family that looks after each other, and a family that will serve me in my time of need. So I have a friend in Texas. He's a pastor. And over the past few years, his wife has had some health issues. So a couple years ago, she went in for a surgery. They knew the recovery would be long. And I remember him telling me, you know, Chris, I'm just kind of hoping like that our church can help out a little bit. We don't, we don't need a lot, but just a little bit. And so we talked a few weeks later and he said, Chris, here was the miracle. For 44 consecutive days, someone brought us a meal. 44, we had more food than we knew what to do with. People would start coming to our house. Hey, we have a meal for you. I would say back to him, hey, I've got a meal for you. We have lots of food. Like we're overflowing. We don't know what to do with all this food. Here's the great thing. No committee was started to bring this family meals. No vote was taken. There wasn't a special meeting. It was just people who just loved Jesus and stepped into that role of serving. It's amazing. 
44 consecutive days, their needs were met in abundance because the church was obedient to what it was supposed to be. So it's meeting in a time of needs. And we talked about every season. I think, you know, we should address. It's also confronting our brothers and sisters in Christ when really there's areas of sin, when they step outside of what God intends for them. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 6. But before we go there, I want to point out really the tragedy of the church of Corinth was the tolerance of sin. That is why Corinth was in the shape that it was. There was sin throughout the church. And, you know, each chapter, it kind of feels like there's a different issue Paul is addressing with these believers um, because no one was really stepping in and saying, you know what, this is not okay. There's even an instance in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where there's a man having an affair with his stepmother. And Paul says something to the effect of, hey, even the Gentiles know this is wrong. Basically saying, even the outside world knows what you're doing is wrong. No one was stepping in and addressing these things. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And there's two phrases you can focus on in that passage. First, restore. Okay. So that's the hard part. That's, the hard, that's really the hard conversation. But it's restore in a spirit of gentleness. Okay, So it's not just you know, getting angry and having this conversation and really just kind of letting it fly and all of those things. But it's saying, hey, I see that this is going on in your life. Let me encourage you um, that we've all fallen short. But because I love you, I feel like I need to address this. Paul thankfully doesn't leave it there. He also uses the second phrase, bear one another's burdens. So when he says this, it's not just the hard conversation. It's having the conversation, but saying, hey, you know what? I know this is going on, but know that I am for you and I am with you. And that together with the Lord's help, we're going to get through this. That's the ministry of the church. That we're willing to step into those messy places with people. When the worst things happen that we don't abandon, that we don't give license or permission um, for sinful behavior, but that ultimately we want to see people restored to Jesus. That's our responsibility. That's our role that we get to do as the church. So as we think about being a church member, um, I was reminded this week um, in my study about really one of my ministry heroes. And you're probably thinking, Chris, we already know that like you have a man crush on David Platt. You've already admitted that. Um, guys, this ministry hero is not a pastor. He's not a worship leader. I don't know that he's ever preached or led from up front. He was a volunteer youth leader in our youth ministry when I was in high school. And the reason why this man became one of my ministry heroes, he had a day job. He was a volunteer. He came to Christ as an adult. And there was a neighborhood um, around where I grew up um, with a lot of fatherless homes, a lot of poverty. And this man's name was James. James just kind of decided, you know what, I think God has posi positioned me to reach this neighborhood. 
So he would bring students to the youth ministry. But not only that, he would ask them intentional questions. Where there was no father, he became a father figure. Where there was no spiritual leader, he became the spiritual leader for those students. He showered just kindness on these students. He shared the gospel with them. You know, I'd like to think that one day I'm going to see some of these students in heaven um, because of James. James was not a pastor. He wasn't an elder. He wasn't a worship leader. James was a church member. James was a faithful church member who knew that God had positioned him to reach a specific group of people. And he said yes. He was obedient. So as we think about the church this morning, it's interesting to me that in Ephesians chapter 5, and really in other parts of the Bible as well, you, know, you see the gospel alluded to as this marriage relationship with Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the bride of Christ. And if you think about it, some of you, you know, are married or maybe you're getting ready or you're preparing to be married, and you have kind of a list of qualities that you're looking for in a spouse. And so no one really says, you know, I really hope I end up with the spouse that's unfaithful. No one really says, you know, I hope I end up with the spouse that's not trustworthy. No one says, I hope I end up with a spouse that's kind of lazy. No one says, you know what, I hope I end up with a spouse that has wandering eyes. The thing about the gospel is it's, it's basically the opposite. Jesus takes the bride, the church, that will be unfaithful, that has wandering eyes, that isn't always trustworthy, that's horribly broken, that sin has just done a number on. And Jesus loves that church. That's the gospel. It's that we've all fallen short, that we've all sinned. And yet, Jesus loves us in that. He loves us anyways. This morning, church, I want to encourage us. Um, attending church is a great thing, but faithfully living out our calling and being the church is what God is inviting us to. We've seen how much Jesus loves the church, that he takes the bride that isn't always faithful. Our response is to step into our role, to be contributors, not consumers, and to be better together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you this morning for your love. God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That you loved us first. God, I pray that our response isn't criticism. God, that our response isn't walking away from you, God, but that our response is serving you. God, that we would be faithful to what you've called us to do. Lord, help us to be the church. Help us to develop a reputation in Fairfield. God, for our love, for our service, for the ways that we honor you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.